0: One day I remember in critique, I was like, you know, I don't want to do the figure. Screw this. And so I knew I wanted to do the figure and I knew I wanted to make provocative paintings. So instead of making paintings that were, you know, sort of just about the process of looking, I started to make these satirical paintings of nude men. And that's when I started to sort of find my voice as a painter, as an artist. I'm not one of those painters that's just simply seduced, you know, just by the medium itself and just by the sort of design problems that are presented, I wanted to make paintings that sort of shocked people as well that were sort of provocative. Made you take a second look.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 70th episode, our first of the new year, we have artist Melissa Wilkinson on to discuss her works, which incorporate a digital process, archiving tons of different images from art history, pop culture, different images of landscapes, of architecture, of the figure. And she combines them all into a digital process that she then paints meticulously with watercolor. They're very beautiful, very interesting paintings so please check them out at melissawilkinson.net. Again, her show Frontiers opens January 25th at Jan Brant Gallery in Bloomington, Illinois. Again, she's showing that same night with Steve Adair, who was recently on the podcast. His show Leafform opens the same night, so again, two shows same night, great place, so go check it out. If somebody sent you a magical hyperlink to this and you've never heard of Studio Break, we are a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists who come on and discuss their work in great length and detail very candidly, and you can find all of these great interviews on studiobreak.com. Again, each of the posts have images of the artist's work, as well as links to their websites. You can access all of the episodes that we have by looking over on the left. You can find the archive function, go month by month, check out all the great ones, or you can find us in iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast, Studio Break, and easily get a new episode that way. It's a great companion. If you're working in the studio and you want to listen to other artists struggle, and some quick reminders, we are on Twitter, so follow us at Studio Break. You can follow me personally at David Linoway. Please like our Facebook page where you can find out about some opportunities, preview some of the guests that we have coming up, as well as make show announcements, things like that. And again, plenty of stuff coming up in the new year, so please like our Facebook page. All right, everyone, here is our interview with Melissa. Stay tuned. Welcome to a 70th edition of Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined this lovely Sunday morning with Melissa Wilkinson. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. It's great to have you on. I know that we've talked about this. Obviously, you have a show coming up at Jan Brandt, so we're kind of very excited about that and to talk about the work that you've been making specifically for that. But of course, uh, as you know, and as we've been kind of catching up, we're old acquaintances, old friends, studio mates. And so I'm going to hopefully kind of uh, recreate that graduate school environment where I come over and knock on your door and annoy the hell out of you. I can't wait. (laughs) Uh, So where are you talking to us from today?
0: Uh, My office from (laughs) Yes. What's the address there? I currently live in Bono, Arkansas, population 1200.
1: Wow. So how long have you been there?
0: Four years now.
1: Excellent, excellent. And so you're from?
0: I'm from north of Chicago, Illinois, Illinois Waukegan, Illinois. Uh,
1: so again, so you studied painting and drawing? I
0: did my undergrad at Western Illinois. That's in Macomb.
1: And so was art always something that you, were, that you knew you kind of wanted to, to go for, to, to pursue when you were uh, a wee kid?
0: Um, yes, it was. Absolutely. I um, always knew I wanted to be an artist. It was never, there was never a question in my head at all. Um, my earliest memory is drawing little Egyptian people, uh, in profile in the first grade. And the teacher came over and asked me, um, if I wanted to be in special classes across the street in the junior high. And so that's where the dream unfolded for me.
1: I I like, I like that.
0: Yeah. They tested us with a really, really difficult still life of teddy bears. And I remember it being really, really hard, but somehow I got in.
1: See, I absolutely love that. I wish that was more of what was going on now instead of the whole... um,
0: Everybody's a winner thing?
1: Everybody gets first place.
0: Yeah. No, I I won first place there. (laughs) (laughs) One of the few times in my life.
1: (laughs) See, now you can feel like a winner looking back on it.
0: Like any kid our age, I was um, into comics and like the Ninja Turtles. I was like your quintessential tomboy. I wasn't interested in the girly things so I drew cars and low riders I I grew up in a really urban area so that was really popular and bubble names and you know I would charge kids 50 cents to draw their name in bubble letters and graffiti letters but it was like (laughs) drawing a lot of different things um yeah but you know you know I think like any artist, though even young artists I think they go on these stints you know so I did the Marvel comics for A year or two and then I tried to make my own comic and then I would get into I drew after my toys a lot like we had these amazing Ninja Turtle I had these amazing Ninja Turtle toys where all the anatomy was a you know visible in the in the molding so you could see the vein work and the sinew and the musculature and the bicep you know and I would I would I would set them up and I would draw them
1: See, that's so awesome to me. I probably would be way, I don't know. I probably got way too lazy and just traced something.
0: Well, I did that too. (laughs) I I would put on um, Conan, a barbarian. Mm -hmm. Cause yeah, as corrupt as that is, my, my first love of all time was other than um, other than George Michael, it was uh, (laughs) it was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so I would pause it and I would trace his body, (laughs) do the sword seam. You know, when he was practicing on the beachfront. Yeah, when spaghetti. he was all
1: roided out to all oh, yeah. all possibilities.
0: I loved it. So yeah, I would absolutely. I traced a lot. I taught myself how to draw by tracing. Well,
1: it's interesting too because it brings up uh, something, of course, that we'll talk about. I'm sure is is your interest in uh, pop culture, and you know, certainly we've had many conversations about uh, cheesy. 1980s uh, movies and music, but we'll kind of get back to that. But so, so you always kind of knew that you wanted to do this. In terms of high school, I'm, I'm sure you took all those kind of high school art classes. Did you, did you go to college with the intention then that you're going to be a fine artist?
0: Well, I had really supportive high school teachers, ones that really I, I just, you know, encouraging family, but um, the high school teachers that I had were artists. They weren't the type of art educators that you just sort of went into it to have a job. So, I mean, they regularly made art and they knew all the contemporary artists and they would take us to Chicago. And I mean, I had never been to an art museum until high school and I lived 40 miles outside of Chicago.
1: And what was that like?
0: Honestly, just the city itself was really overwhelming. It just seemed something that was like completely unattainable that this life, you know, I came from lower middle class family, you know, a split family, lower middle class, you know, kind of poor in a way. So it just seemed like a life that I couldn't, I couldn't paint that picture for my future. But yeah, so I actually went into college with the intention of being an art education major. Um, So for the first year, maybe two, I was art ed. And then right before, um, right before I had to take those those dreaded education classes, because I don't have a particular like or dislike towards children. I kind of, you know, ambivalent towards them. I'm going to like them, but. Mm-hmm. I don't have any for a reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had some. I had some help. Some mentors came by and was were like, you know, is this what you really want to do? Right, right. Is this really the life that you want? And so I decided to to go balls to the wall and just say I was going to be an artist. And so I did. And I'm I'm really glad I made that decision because the older I get, the more I realize that life is really short to do something you don't want to do day in and day out. Right, right. Even if you think or have made negotiations that it's sort of similar or that it taps into art somehow, I'm really glad I didn't do that.
1: Well, and so what, what did you kind of pursue immediately? I mean, I, obviously, I, would have, I don't know. What, of course, as a painter, I'm thinking like you must have been like, I want to paint. But I mean, is that is that what your first love was in terms of just kind of approaching studio work?
0: Well, I didn't have any paints, uh, like oil paint. I didn't, my first oil paint set was when I was a junior in college. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had, I remember I was in high school, I was stealing the, uh, the acrylics, you know, the basic (laughs) Blick Dick Blick (laughs) primary sets. I would steal it and take it home and paint with that and house paint and stuff. But I hadn't really painted, honestly. It was just a drawer. Um, And then when I, I was just chomping at the bit to take painting. I remember all those prerequisites were killing me. And then when I took it, I was making paintings that were trying to be paintings of my teachers, like Mm -hmm. any good student. Right. Right. So I started off by painting still lifes and figures. And, um, I remember I was making these really bad Janet fish, um, knockoffs, Janet fish, still life, knockoffs Mm -hmm. and. uh, one day I remember in critique, I was like, you know, I don't want to do the figure. Screw this. And so I knew I wanted to do the figure, and I knew I wanted to make provocative paintings. So instead of making paintings that were, you know, sort of just about the process of looking, I started to make these satirical paintings of nude men. Um, and that's when I started to sort of find my voice as a painter, as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um Because it wasn't—I'm not one of those painters that's just simply seduced, you know, just by the medium itself and just by the sort of design problems that are presented. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make paintings that sort of shocked people as well, that were sort of provocative. Made you take a second look? Right. Yeah, I've spent a while making dick paintings of men. (laughs) Actually. (laughs) And that's what got me into graduate school. (laughs)
2: Geez. Not
0: literally. Right? I mean, you know, like figure paintings of men where it was full frontal nudity and, you know, the embellished grain region was, of course, like a part where we're normally, if it were a woman, wasn't really an issue.
1: But, but it seems clear, though, that even at that time, then you were kind of interested in moving a painting beyond just a mere representation of what it is. Interested in bringing up ideas about what it is, what we make it, how we kind of create the way that we see the world around us or at least the way that some people even might even oppose or impose that rather sorry
0: and and as a woman artist too i mean i mean i hate when people say that i'm a woman artist but right i am a woman artist and my experience navigating the world and as an artist and you know as a you know fairly mouthy artist um was to really look at like the male nude as rather than you know, this homoerotic thing as a provocatrix, as, you know, as a woman, you know, I want to look at men the same way that men have looked at women. Right. Um, so negotiating like the medium and the history of it seemed important to me at even at an early age. And that's something I, I kind of teach my students a lot. You know, what are you, what, what are you reexamining in history? You know, it's, it's, it's stupid to tell a student to try to do something new because really they don't just, you know i think i think that's a really empty statement do something new but i think it's interesting to ask people to reinvent a medium or reinvent a genre Mm-hmm. by looking at it with fresh eyes. I think that's important.
1: You know, you're kind of creating this body of work to kind of bring up all these issues. Um, what what did you learn by that? How did it make you change, I guess, the way that you would kind of pursue work after that? Because it seems like, again, you know, you really don't want to have this just a straight up like I paint like these really nice things or, you know, I paint, you know, landscapes or I paint this or that. I mean, it seems like, again, you really want to have people kind of walking away from seeing it and kind of re-examining something about it.
0: I I had really, really smart professors who would talk about art history in a way that wasn't being talked about in my art history classes. Mm -hmm. They were talking about emblems. They were talking about symbols. They were talking about, you know, little little devices that the artists would use to sort of make a snide comment, like, you know, the black cat on the end of the bed in Manet's Olympia.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, You know, I was really interested in in guys like Manet, um, you know, where you know the uh the 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 drapery at the end of the bed was just as vaginal as the fact that she was covering up her nether region um in this sort of dainty, elegant way. um things like that really enticed me as a as a painter that you could tell narratively um that you could tell narr- narrative stories by the power of suggestion um that you could use devices without you know sort of still life and the body. And these sort of Freudian inclusions as a means to sort of guide the viewer on a on a sort of, well, it's oftentimes political um, journey. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something really seductive about being, a, you know, people inherently knowing how to read images when they come to look at a painting because of the way that we're conditioned. How I would do that is oftentimes I would include myself in the image as a sort of like The painter with her model and the model would be a male nude, Mm -hmm. you know, they were sort of knee jerk and they were really like me discovering feminism.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, so I I was in a way reinventing the wheel, but, um, they were important because painters at the time, like Lisa Yuskovich and John Curran were doing just that. And in, in a way that made, you know, that, that venerated painting in a way that wasn't ironic. I mean, yeah, people, people kind of poop on Lisa Yuskovich and John Curran because you know, everything's about satire, but satire is a way that we communicate. Satire is the way that we tell stories. Um, you know, South Park and The Simpsons and 30 Rock. I mean, all of those cutaways essentially are the joke. Just
1: talking about this, you know, series of paintings, um, you know, the way that you are kind of constructing them, creating these narratives within them that kind of re-examine what they're about, your relationship to the, you know, the male nude and, and all these things. So how did this wind up um, leading you to graduate school and, and kind of elevating that, you know, and continually elevating it? And I think that's something that obviously most artists are, you know, they're striving to kind of continually expand their work. But, you know, how, how did you see that, I guess, in that process of uh, expanding what you were building on, I guess?
0: Well, I spent most of my career in graduate school doing portraits, pretty straightforward portraits, and the thing in graduate school is that I really started to sort of step out on my own in that I was pretending to be an observational painter in undergrad and in mm-hmm. an early grad trying to have a dialogue with like, you know, guys like Manet and, you know, Sargent, but I wasn't. And I started to sort of embrace the photograph as a, me- as a sort of visual language. So I started to incorporate, you know, really simple devices like the flash shadow, um, And I started to project my images rather than hand draw them. Um, So I started to make the photograph actually sort of content in the work. Um, So the straightforward photography that I was using was really kind of crappy, um, you know, low production value um, images. So um, I think my first sort of semi-successful body of work that I did in graduate school was, you know, this hundred paintings that I did of um, my long-term you know, relationship at the time, which is not my husband. Um, and they were really corny, intimate, um, paintings, watercolors that I did, small watercolors that I did that are, that were all appropriated in the exact same size of the prints of the photographs.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and that's when I realized that what I was doing was essentially, you know, sort of like I was interested in sort of the, you know, the postmodern, you know, like appropriation and, um, you know, not trying to make my paintings other than what they were, which was just exact, exact, you know, facsimiles of the source, the sources. And I remember somebody told me in graduate school, one of my teachers told me this, um, he said, it's not that your paintings are interesting. It's the fact that you're doing them. That's interesting. Um, and that stuck with me. And initially I took that as sort of a a big slight as a big, um, I took it, you know, as a razor (laughs) razor's edge, Uh, comment, but it's something that stuck with me because it seemed to be really head on.
1: Well, and it seems like especially that that decision or that kind of allowing yourself to kind of think about it, especially the the digital applications, the way that that could be expanded upon and kind of, I don't know, really do something differently uh, for your work is really interesting. I mean, was that something that just completely expanded the way that you you know, pursued those interests because again, you can still kind of have something that's dealing with representation and you know, formal concerns, but again, I mean, why? So, I mean, did that really open up, um, you know, the way that you could process all that digital way of working in the series of works that you're doing?
0: Well, I worked like that for a while, I, wrote, I worked as a direct appropriationist for several years, and I did that resistantly almost as a way to like really claim my ideology that I stood behind. Um, because, you know, I, I was kind of brought up, you know, tracing is bad. Uh, mm-hmm. Working with the photograph is cheating. Um, these are really sort of outmoded. I, I, and I, I'm sure you've dealt with it too, but, um, I'm not kind of, I'm not quite sure, you know, what your undergraduate teachers told you. Mm-hmm. So with me, it was sort of, I was very resistant to shake that for a while because at, at some point, you know, I mean. Years after graduate school, a handful of years after graduate school, I looked at my body of work and I was just like, this isn't really mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one thing being an appropriation artist, but it's, you know, I wanted to make images that sort of added to the spectrum of what it was I was talking about. I wanted to make images that were mine. And I wanted to make images that had a dialogue with more things than just appropriation art. So that's when I started to incorporate the sort of digital collage because I was doing these paintings of disasters, um, these ink paintings of disasters, actually, very straightforward, just found images that I found on Google. Um, and what was transforming them was the fact that I was working on Mylar and that you can't really make direct paintings on Mylar without them just sort of doing what they want. Mm-hmm. So they look like bleeding, bleeding ink watercolors. And I realized that I had sort of like technically come to a point that, you know, I was satisfied with, but I wasn't quite making provocative images in the way that I wanted to. And that's when I sort of sat down and literally started to cut up images and create collages. And I realized that it would be a lot easier to sort of do that just on on Photoshop.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And when I started to make those images, it was kind of like, I really don't know what to do. You know, that's, I think we all go through that when we're starting new bodies work, but like this is completely new to me, but what the hell, I'll try it. Right, right. And I had this gigantic studio that I was running in Texas. Um, and I, you know, started with really big paper. And I was like, well, let's try this. Let's see what happens. And it ended up being sort of the beginning of the artist that I, that I consider myself now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm still appropriate, an appropriation artist and I'm still a, a works on paper artist, a drawer or a watercolor, whatever you want to call it. But I also consider myself sort of one of those, one of those artists that straddles abstraction and representation.
1: I'm wondering when, when watercolor specifically kind of crept in because, you know, it's something that you use um, so much now. I mean, did you start using watercolor through these classes?
0: No. I, I, um, I had a teacher, a mentor in undergrad, Julie Mahoney, who, um and she did a lot of watercolor. And I was kind of trained fairly traditionally doing a lot of observational stuff. Um, and watercolor was one of the classes that was offered. And when I took it, I remember it was really difficult for me. Um, because i couldn't quite get it in my head that it was a very immediate painting practice it wasn't it didn't work the way that oil painted worked for, you know worked for me it wasn't it wasn't this thing that I allowed myself to sort of just make a mark and leave it um so I remember that it took me probably three times as long to finish a watercolor than most of the class, so they ended up getting really muddy and kind of brown and but really worked and there was something really seductive about that. I don't know. I don't know if I ever painted watercolor the way that I had been exposed or that I had been, you know, sort of taught that other people had painted, you know, light, airy, transparent. So I just did, like, layer after layer after layer after layer. So I kind of fell in love with it then and picked it up again my second year in graduate school, sort of on a whim when I didn't know what I was doing and didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I started graduate school painting these, like, gigantic oil portraits, portraits, Realized they weren't really going anywhere, and so I ended up doing a series of 100 paintings of my husband Joe in watercolor, and that's where it sort of came back. And I haven't dropped it since.
1: So so you have a, a series of work, um, the Abmaster's work, and then you have the Frontier's work. And what I really like about them is that even though I think one is really, you know, obviously directly kind of incorporates the figure more, but the other one also kind of deals with that that idea. And there's this reexamining of things with the figure and then also things related to the figure, you know, the space that it occupies. And it becomes something that's kind of interesting.
0: The the figure, though, for me, has always been like like bitch mis- mistress. Mm-hmm. She's always something that I want to deal with, um, but something that I haven't quite figured out how to incorporate in a way that is saying what I want to say mm-hmm. or um, aesthetically doing what I want to do. Um, but I've allowed myself to work like literally a collage artist where I identify with a subject matter and a source, and then I see what the process will do to that source, and then I paint it. Um, but the figure is so charged psychologically, emblematically, symbolically, um, that it's really a hard, it's a very difficult thing for an artist like me to deal with. I'm not a terribly creative person. (laughs) I'm not the type of person that can sit down in front of a white canvas and just do something. Right. I never have been. I need source imagery. Um, I need pre-digested mediated material to make my, to make my work possible. So the figure today in the 21st century, you know, I don't want to be, in order to be sophisticated, you either have to be one of two artists. You have to be the cool clinical artist who sort of is very detached from the figure and doesn't recognize all of the psychological and, you know, sexual and romantic sort of, um, you know, meaning behind it, um, Mm -hmm. substance behind it. Or you're one of these sort of classical, very academic painters who ignores all that stuff
1: right
2: right
0: and just talks about its you know potential for um the romantic and antiquated notions of like the nude so the reality is is the majority of us see the nude today in pornography um and in our history um or in person if you're lucky enough um yeah
1: definitely
0: <laughs> so it's it's a difficult thing to deal with today because if you pull from that then you're considered an erotic artist and that's um, the Admaster stuff where I literally pulled from art history and sort of abstracted from art history, that's what I wanted to sort of confront is I wanted to see technically if I could do it, but I also wanted to sort of update it in a way that, um, allowed me to paint the figure, but not in this sort of antiquated way.
1: Well, and it's interesting too, cause you, you bring, it makes me think of, you know, how also just the, the, maybe like a pervasive culture that's you know really kind of conservative about the idea of people being nude you know sexuality you know something that's really kind of oppressive it's mm-hmm. so the people versus larry flint so famously has that you know clip where larry flint is like showing the slideshow of like violence and then just nude forms um yeah. so there's something there's something interesting about that and, you know something that you know when you're talking about it yeah it's so obvious you know the way that again my, there might be just a couple of modes that people traditionally think like this is how I can make my mark so it's interesting to think about that so what what, what are some of the uh, sources that you pulled from? I mean, obviously you've kind of talked about art history a lot it, it seems like it's always been something that you're uh, obsessed with so I mean are there specific images for you then that you're trying to, to mismatch in terms of like the collages then do you just kind of give yourself the freedom to just, I'm going to pick the most two outlandish images throw them together and see what happens
0: Very rarely will I do that. Almost always do the images how the images transformed mm-hmm. or, or the 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 final product or the final image almost always references the original source. So with the architecture work, I wanted to reference like modernist abstraction or modernist architecture in general. Mm-hmm. Um with the the works dealing with art history, I was pulling a lot from like Dutch 17th century painters. So like Rubens or um, you know, the still life artists. So I'd pull a lot from, you know, flower still lifes, which are historically really important, but also just, I think, as painters are something that we continue to look back on because they're very beautiful objects.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I wanted... So if I'm making paintings where I'm directly appropriating from the Baroque, I want the painting to feel like neo-Baroque.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, if I'm pulling images from disasters and houses and structures, um, then I want them to sort of feel like... Uh, the coolness, the detached thing that I was talking about before of modernist abstraction. So it's kind of like the way I consume movies. Yeah. I can, you know, one of your questions on your questionnaire is something about (laughs) your favorite movies. Right. And it's really easy for me to give you these, you know, really um, cerebral movies that are really, you know, works of cinematic works of art. But the reality is, is I oftentimes watch movies repeatedly again and again and again Just because of the sort of emotive, um, like the aesthetic denotes some sort of emotive aura to it. Like the movie Underworld with Kate, um, Kate Beckinsale Mm -hmm. was shot in, in the Czech Republic, um, in Prague. And there's just something about that rain and that architecture and that dinginess that's really seductive to me. So I've probably seen the movie a hundred times, even though it's, it's a terrible movie, (laughs) Um, and the movie girl with the dragon tattoo, the one, uh, the American version, the one that David Fincher did, mm-hmm. there's something about, you know, murder, intrigue, you know, solitude and snow that's really seductive to me. So, I mean, when I pull from those eras or when I pull from the fifties or when I pull from the 1700s in Europe, like I want to emote that kind of cinematic, um, aura in the work. In the way that a film does,
1: I think that makes sense. You know, it, it makes me wonder too, like that. There is certainly like that narrative element, the way that it's layered. You know, and certainly something that you know when somebody kind of investigates film, it's funny. I used to really love David Lynch, and I still do, but um, for some reason, just the last couple of years, Stanley Kubrick um, just like stands out a hell of a lot more to me. And term, but I think especially the thing that I've come to appreciate is just all the all the layering research and, you know, all these things that you don't necessarily see immediately, something that allows you to kind of become immersed in there. It kind of makes me think about the way that you're talking about about that work, too, or the way that, again, maybe a room full of these could kind of... I don't know, contribute towards that dialogue, you know, within, you know, the realm of whatever, like series of like 20 paintings or whatnot, the way that it kind of talks about that, that layered idea, the way that it might be similar in one work to another one, but still kind of resolved in a different way.
0: In all honesty, when I make the work, I make the work to fit a room. I don't make the work to have individual pieces stand on their own Mm -hmm. and sort of touch on that, that sort of feeling i I make a room to sort of immerse you in it I want you to be bathing in the baroque I want you to be bathing in um anxiety from the architecture I I really do think cinematically I think you can probably appreciate this is Mm -hmm. that I think that you know I went into academia so that I wouldn't have to make a body of work and never veer from it and sell 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 I went into academia so I can make whatever I felt like making when I feel like making it right right well no I have to feel like making it pretty much every day. But um, if I feel that the work needs to change, I'm allowed to do that. I'm flexible enough to do that. I'm not reliant on a gallery. Mm-hmm. So I do make the work to sit in a space and be an immersive experience. But oftentimes, I've I, I, the longest I've ever stuck to a body of work was the architecture work. And I make that off and on for the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is I'm bouncing all over the place because... I'm really seduced by a lot of different images and I am a, you know, I am a product of the 21st century, just like anybody else. So I have, I'm, I'm willing and able to suffer the consequences of having and wearing a lot of different hats as a painter.
1: Well, and I think, but I think that's one of the best ways to keep it interesting. Um, You know, and I think, you know, in a, in a realistic sense, I think one of the things that in, especially graduate school, people think a lot about is, is, you know, what they're going to do after, um, and I think a lot of people come to realize that um, it might not be exactly um, like Great Expectations,
2: yeah.
1: you know, where a benefactor decides to <laughs> buy out your first New York show. Yeah. Um, so I think that's also something that kind of comes up because you start to wonder, you know, am I making this uh, to fi- fill a niche or am I making this to, you know, continue this exploration? You know, if you've got closets full of paintings at home you know, are you, are you doing this because you love it or because you want to, you know, just move all of these paintings, you know, and right. it seems clearly like that idea of, you know, research and exploration is something that you're more interested.
0: But I think the graduate school though, uh, oftentimes, I remember I had two experiences in graduate school. I went to, you know, I went to two different graduate schools. So it's interesting to see, it's really, you know, it's really easy to, to compare them and see the differences, but one consistent thing is that it seems like the expectation is, is that we're going to exhaust the ideas behind a body of work for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't make a career off of making one different painting from the next from the next from the next. You, you can't possibly build a career off of that. But you you know, most of us you know I, I've been gifted in that, that I can make paintings really quickly. So I can move through my ideas very, very quickly as well. So exhausting something to the point of me being nauseous to go into the studio. I mean, the studio after graduate school is no longer about discovery. It's Mm -hmm. about work and labor. So being committed to the ideas, I think, is the most compelling thing and the most important thing, because otherwise you're not going to make it if you're not excited about it. Right, right. But I'm always telling my students that, is that, you know, the excitement goes away, (laughs) Very rarely do I have those really high heroin moments where I'm like whoa this is this is totally new for me, holy cow,
1: right, right." Well, and I think but that's something that's also a reality with art, too. You know, we all especially love to see dozens of works in a grand space. I say grand because I recently saw The Hobbit, of course. Yeah. But, you know, a big grand space, lights coming down from the ceiling, you know, this majestic place. Um, but, yeah, I mean, ultimately it comes down to having to work late, get up early, fit in two hours of painting between a break or something like that. Right, but I think ultimately, in that at the same time, I still feel like there's a level of um being able to to step back from it the same way that if you're you know working on a still life drawing for a couple of hours and you don't kind of see it in context, it's almost like seeing it in context, you know taking five feet ten feet back from it to to kind of change your perspective, I guess,
0: yeah, well, it's funny because I'm having that experience at uh work right now because. The students get to the point where they're working towards their show, and they have, we have this beautiful, beautiful gallery space called the Bradbury. I mean, it's gorgeous. And I always tell the students, this is probably going to be one of the most beautiful places you're ever going to show. So get good images, of course, but realize that. Yeah, every time your work comes back, because I mean, most of us don't have the luxury of selling each piece. Most of us have to live with our work looking at us every day in the studio. All that work is just facing out towards us. And you might as well make the most beautiful thing that you can the most interesting thing that you can because that space really is a luxury. That space is a, is a privilege. And I don't know when I go into the studio, I want to be able to pull out my paintings. And luckily I paint a lot on on paper. So I, you know, I can hide it, but when I pull it out, I want, I want to feel a sense of accomplishment because that sense of accomplishment that you feel in that ideal space in New York, where you get to put up 10 paintings in a gigantic 3000 square foot, you know, room isn't going to happen that often, you know, I don't know. It's sort of a bleak way to look at it, but, um, the reality is, is it's our job to make, you know, beautifully crafted objects first and foremost.
1: How does the process work like on the digital side versus the studio side, like, the, the collage aspect of it? I mean, are you doing them all like digitally and just editing them? Do you save, you know, different versions? Are you like printing stuff out and collaging by hand? I'm guessing not.
0: I spend a lot of time, more time than I care to admit, archiving and just pulling from Google Search and Bing and just pulling, pulling, pulling images. And I have to use really high-res images um, in order to be able to work from them because I'm kind of a quasi-photorealist. So, I mean, I need all that detail. I can't have p- pixelation. And I'm certainly not as talented a person that can just make it up. <laughs> right. uh, I spend many, many hours archiving. Um, based on the source, based on the, the intention behind the series. Then um, I spend many hours sitting and just sort of messing around on Photoshop. I had, kind of had a process with the architecture that was very sort of figured out. And after I figured it out, which took a couple of years, I sort of got tired of it because it became very, um, you know, very clinical and very sort of contrived. So I would use like three or four images and I would half-tone, or really just sort of create a black and white flat image of one image, and I would drop it onto a found image, and I would delete all of the black, and then i throw that onto another image, and i delete all of the white. And so what would happen would be is there would be this sort of pastiche where I would move it around and sort of figure it out in a way that compositionally made sense that created sort of a dynamism and a sort of suggested Perspective, I guess, that was real but also obviously very abstract. In the later works, in the more overtly pastiche stuff, the stuff that sort of just didn't create the semblance of a space that was sort of more flat space like the App Master stuff, I just would copy and paste and delete, copy, paste, and delete. And I'd play with them until something worked. Sometimes it's a really quick process, sometimes they just work, and sometimes it takes forever. Sometimes I'll spend four or five hours messing around on Photoshop and I won't get anything. Um, and sometimes I'll spend half an hour and I'll have five mock-ups. Right, right. So I print out the mock-ups and I print a digital transparency and I project them. Um, and I very painstakingly trace them out on the scale that I want. With the watercolors, I work if it's color, I work directly. So I'll paint from one end to the other. With the oil paintings, I kind of taught myself the process of the Imprimatura. And I would do the wipeout method and I would do an entire painting in grisaille, in brown, wiping out my lights and adding in my darks. And I would wait for that to dry, and then I would layer color over that and sort of redo the painting sort of in the old master style. And that was really important for me because I wanted the paintings to be like old master paintings. Because if you've ever stood in front of a Rubens, you know, that bad boy could paint. Right. (laughs) But the reality is, is all of the images are really slick, Uh, they're slick in that they sort of work on reproduction probably better than they work in person. A lot of times that's really demeaning, but self-demeaning, but it's kind of true and that's because I'm working from really slick images. I'm working from photographs. And so I want to create a surface that's a little bit more seductive and a little bit more beautiful so that I serve a a point um, so that people don't look at my work and go, oh, that'd just be better as a, you know, a cheap magazine collage. Nothing against cheap magazine collages, but I think that oil paint and watercolor and paper. I mean, I think that those things are really seductive. And, you know, if anything I believe in, it's sort of this Dionysian joy of life. I believe that painting should be like Christmas dinner. (laughs) You know, my mouth waters in front of a Rubens, literally.
1: Well, so that's something that's interesting, too, though, because, I mean, obviously, like investigating all these different modes, I mean, is that something that also like leads into other bodies of work, or at least it leads into offshoots. And especially since you are open to starting a new different work or new series or, or something kind of on a, a dime, if you want to, I mean, is that something that, that lends itself to other techniques? or you kind of get involved in, you know, like exploring one thing and then it turns into a whole another series you didn't anticipate.
0: Yeah. Um, and I'll allow that to happen. And I think the teaching plays a big role in that. I think that the fact that I have to research for a living in order to show my students new work, that I'm not the kind of professor who's just going to show the type of work that I make, you know, that, that can be really seductive and learning how to do it. You know, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff isn't taught anymore. So, I mean, that will lead me into, oh, I really want to do a body of work that really focuses on, you know, heightened ink paintings or whatever. That can spark an interest as well. You know, religious painting, I'm not terribly fond of religious painting but if you look at any of the spanish paintings of you know like the 17th and 18th century you know there's a lot of people rolling their eyes in the back of their head in ecstasy and you know that that would be a wonderful alignment with naked bodies i mean ultimately it's a sexual ecstasy because that's how the christians chose to communicate with people about religious religious ecstasy is something very similar to a carnal ecstasy so i mean those are things that i think about I'm very methodical, though. I think that people think that when they meet me that I'm this sort of, you know, person that's just going to sort of make whatever Mm -hmm. uh, because whatever comes out of my mouth. But the reality is is I'm very, very uh, sort of a control type A control freak when it comes to my work. I need a process that is dictated. I will align myself to that process. My paintings will look exactly like my mock-up. There's very little discovery and there's very little chance for something serendipitous to happen because um, I don't want to waste any time. And I have this argument with a lot of my teachers, uh, well, uh, specifically my mentor. And she's like, well, you know, that just sort of kills the joy of it, doesn't it? It's like, well, no, I feel joy not through the struggle of the painting, because it's always going to be a struggle and not through the discovery of the painting. I feel joy and a sense of immense, immense pleasure when I see the painting up on a wall. You know, that's where I get my sense of accomplishment. It's not through you know, like my husband works that way. He loves the struggle. So he'll impose strategies in his working process that makes it more difficult, which I can't possibly fathom. What masochistic person would want that process <laughs> is beyond me.
1: We're talking about like searching and, and self-discovery. I mean, I think partially one of the things is that you realize that if you just put in the time, something's going to happen. I th- I think anyways. I mean, I think that it's one thing to kind of be – you know, in a mode where you're not able to kind of make work because you kind of like you have an idea of how something starts out and then you like try it for a second and then you give up. And then you are like, man, Netflix, I still have to catch up on Sons of Anarchy, you know, and gun running. Um, but the reality is, is that it oftentimes comes down to just putting that, that time in, that work in. And I think maybe that... um I don't know. It might. I, I think that's the important thing. You know, I, I don't necessarily think that it means that you have to. You know, you have to put in all of the work to formulate this plan, and then sit down and go. No, now it's about self discovery while I work through this. I mean, I think but I think the work is the important thing, I think spending time to be kind of open at some point and kind of work through it will yield that result. You know, so what if you don't want to sit down and slowly figure out one of these paintings, maybe you figured it all out ahead of time and it doesn't really matter. I mean, I think that in the end, it still is something like you said, you know, that you can see all of them in a room and and see the way that they kind of carry a conversations.
0: Well, and I think that, you know, I can appreciate artists, like, I can, I can look at Morandi and be in awe of that struggle. But the reality is, is I'm the kind of person that really appreciates the magic behind and, and the seduction behind the finished product. Because that labor does mean something to me. I'm very blue-collar in my approach to that. I want the viewer to be unaware of how the picture was constructed I don't want the viewer to have some insight into me being in my fat pants sipping my terrible coffee <laughs> listening to my awful R&B music in my studio. I don't want them to have insight as to how the work was created. I want the magic and mystery to be there. Right. You know, there are two different types of people and that's I'm okay with creating a beautiful chair that sometimes when you sit in it breaks. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't reached that point in my career yet where I have made the chair that, you know, a really heavy person can sit in and still admire the beauty of the chair. I think the thing that keeps me going is the intention of trying to make a beautiful painting every time, more beautiful than the last one. But I think that'll take a long time because I'm very impatient as well.
1: Well, it it makes me wonder, too, about this term that I I saw somebody recently kind of make fun of, which was studio practice. Um, You know, like, why practice? Just do it. Um, but I, I kind of think about it as something like in, in the same way that like a professional athlete has to kind of train, you know, the way that by doing all these things, it might be something, you know, that allows you to kind of remain really energetic for all the different bodies of work that you might want to do instead of just kind of resting in one spot, kind of like how you're talking.
0: Yeah. And I think that term studio practice, like it's a very academic jargony term, but the reality is, is that we're practicing all the time. Right being an artist and telling anybody that it sounds really pretentious and self-important, but we're constantly practicing. We're constantly looking and consuming things differently than the average person. And so your practice, just as much as watching a, you know, Stanley Kubrick movie is just as important as you sitting down and sketching. Right. You know, and I think people really develop these romantic ideas in their head that practice, you know, it only takes place in the studio. I mean, Paula Cher, the woman who did, uh, she's an artist and a graphic designer. She said this wonderful, famous quote when she sat down to do. She did the Citibank logo on a napkin in like thirty seconds, mm-hmm. and the you know the CEO of Citibank looked over, you know, at the famous um, you know the arch, which is you know the umbrella and the you know you, you know the logo.
1: I'm protected.
0: Yeah, she she's he's like, how can you do that? That's ridiculous. How can you do that? <laughs> that's that's stupid. And she goes, no, it's, you know, I didn't just do it in 30 seconds. I did it in 30 seconds and 30 years. You know, I every movie I've consumed, every book I've read, every sketch I've made, every, you know, every interaction I've ever had is informed this moment. So, I mean, I think that studio practice is a real thing. It, it's And for an artist to undervalue it, I think it's kind of ridiculous because, you know. You know, there's this real popular thing today of people, you know, undervaluing what they do because it might sound pretentious. But well what I, we do is very important. It's you know, we're creating culture and we're perpetuating it.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out the world that it's not pretentious. It's just what someone does. Yeah. The reality is it, it takes a lot of energy to be invested in something. When you're talking to someone that spends a good chunk of their time, in a studio making paintings, being intensely, uh, investigative about something. I mean, what's wrong with calling that practice? I think it's okay.
0: Well, and uh, let's be honest too. I and mean, being an artist is an intrinsically narcissistic thing. You make this thing, you put it out there in the world and you hope someone cares about it. But the reality is, is most people don't. <laughs> so when somebody does, you know, something beautiful happens.
1: No, I think, I mean, I think that's, uh, exactly true.
0: Well, I just, you know, you know i've I've taught in some other places and I've spent a good portion of my career trying to convince people that art matters that even just you know even art students that what they're doing is important and the reality is is I'm one of those people that thinks that everything that you do with a lot of energy and gusto is important, sure, sure, <laughs> even if it's writing some hate manifesto, it's important <laughs> but you know, I mean, the reality is, is most people go through their lives without caring about much, without investing their, themselves wholeheartedly. And I think a lot of people think that that is intrinsically narcissistic and in a way it is, but it doesn't take them. It doesn't take the fact that it's meaningful away from it.
1: Before we kind of uh, come to an end here, you know, what, what do we have looking forward to uh, for the Frontier Show? Is, is that what's going on in uh, January, Jan Brandt?
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, Frontier show is a body of work of black and white paintings that I started in ooh, early summer, um, late spring. There will be a, a handful of paintings that are essentially um, sort of an extension of the the architecture work. Um, they're sort of post apocalyptic pastiche images of the landscape, of the sublime, of space, which is why the show is called Frontiers, because it really draws from an aesthetic that is very much about survival in a familiar place. I wanted to see where the work would go if the world did actually end. So it's not really about the fear of the vast, like the sublime landscape actually is, but it's more about the severe of surviving. So the questions that I asked were, you know, where would these people live? How would they live? I was thinking about, you know, really innocuous things like terrariums, you know, self-sustaining life within this sort of bubble of earth. So that's what they are.
1: (laughs) It's going to be exciting to see all these pieces, especially. Well, you kind of get a feel for what they look like digitally, but I think especially for myself, it'll be fun to not only hang out with you, but especially to see them in, in person and to see the way that they relate to each other and, and the way that, I don't know, they just function in that that atmosphere.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing ha- happened with this work, though, is that the merging of multiple images into one image got to the point where you don't necessarily notice it. Um and so the whole picture puzzle thing that actually is happening happened as a result of me taking the color out. And that was, that was an interesting thing that I actually discovered on a residency to Boise, Idaho. I
2: don't
0: know if you've ever been to – have you been to Idaho?
1: No, I haven't.
0: It's like another planet. The landscape literally looks like Mars in some parts. So that actually played a big role in me making the work was this really desolate, almost – like, especially in Boise, it's so dry. There seem to be no trees You had to drive like a half an hour, 45 minutes out to actually see trees. And then suddenly you're, you know, you're in tree country. It's so very, very dry. And it was so very, very hot when I was there that it just, it seemed impossible to survive because I found myself constantly wondering, how are these deer surviving? (laughs) Really? Like how a person even begin to think about surviving. So yeah, that's what the show's
1: about. Oh, it's it's interesting too, because again, it, it just makes me uh, wonder what uh, the next the next body is going to look like or the next piece. And again, you've been so prolific. Uh, it's it's fun to, you know, certainly reexamine all the work that you've made and, and to be able to talk to you about it here. So uh, thanks again for taking the time, and uh, look forward to seeing you in January coming up.
0: I appreciate the opportunity, and it's been fun. I look forward to seeing you as well.
1: Thanks again to Melissa for joining us, and please check out our website, melissawilkinson.net. Her solo show Frontiers opens at Jan Brandt Gallery January 25th, and that's also the same night that Steve Adair's Leaf Forms opens, so don't miss that. Two shows for the price of one. Since you're likely snowed in and looking for new things to look at, please check out my website, davidlinaway.com. I just threw up a number of new transfer paintings, which are a process that I utilize where I transfer an image and paint over the top of it over these wood panels. And I paint a lot of landscape, architecture, old buildings, gas stations, things like that. So please go ahead, check them out at davidlinaway.com. As per usual, we have some reminders. If you've listened to this for the first time studio break, please check out all of the other episodes that we have. A lot of great artists have been on and they talk very openly about their practice and their process. So please check them all out through the archive function just located on the left sidebar. Again, if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, it's a really easy way to get all of your new episodes. So please follow the link to the iTunes store and subscribe there. Once again, If you have been listening for a while and you like the podcast, we would really appreciate you taking the time to leave some positive feedback in iTunes. It especially helps podcast junkies that like to listen to bad at sports on their daily commute or maybe the moth or maybe sound opinions when they're at work trying to get opinions about music. So again, it just helps others that like podcasts to find ours. So please help do your share. Once again, you can like our Facebook page. We have previews from some of the guests that are coming up on Studio Break. We announced competitions and things like that there. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. You can follow me at David Linoway. And that's all the episode we have for today. Again, tons of new stuff coming up this year. We wish you a happy new year, and we'll talk to you real soon.